Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with a physicist who is co-founder and CEO of a company that makes a quantum sensor with potential applications that include mineral exploration, navigation, and security scanning. And the company is involved in a multi-million dollar competition to advance how we measure Earth's magnetic field. SB Quantum is a Canadian company that spun out of Quebec's University of Sherbrooke in 2017. It's developed a magnetometer that uses a superposition of quantum states to enhance its sensitivity to magnetic fields. The company will soon be sending one of its instruments into space, where it will be evaluated on its ability to measure Earth's electromagnetic field. I'm joined down the line from Sherbrooke by the company's co-founder and CEO, David Roy-Gay. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amish. Thanks for having me today. So, David, SB Quantum makes a, a quantum magnetometer that uses nitrogen vacancies in diamond. So what are nitrogen vacancies and how can they be used to measure magnetic fields? Uh, great question. So... Yeah, at the art of the diamond-based magnetometer, NV uh, center stands for nitrogen vacancy impurities in diamond. And um, mainly it's a substitutional uh, nitrogen atom in the carbon diamond lattice. And by the side of it, there's also a missing carbon atom. And that frees up uh, six electrons, uh, which will reconfigure into a quantum state of spin one, a spin one system which is made of a yeah, two electron of spin one half, so a spin one system. And um, what's really great about that system is that that spin one uh, can be probed by a laser illumination. Uh, so if you send a green laser pulse, uh, you will excite this, these impurities, these, uh, these spins, uh, and they will re-emit red light when they decay back. And actually, the, the intensity of that red light, uh, when you pump it also with uh, microwaves, um, will allow you to measure uh, the magnetic field value. Um, so in a nutshell, that, that's very briefly how it works. So really, it's atomic defect. And what's wonderful is that the, in the diamond carbon lattice, the vacancy can be on four different sites in the lattice which allows you to measure the magnetic field along four axes. And, and then you can rebuild the magnetic field vector uh, in a very compact volume. Um, yeah, so in a nutshell, it's how it works. It's, it's very similar to uh, MRI uh, in a sense, uh, except that uh, instead of uh, applying a static field like they would do at the hospital uh, on, on your body and seeing the decay uh, of the spins following a, a pumping, uh, which emits RF uh, excitation, um, well, everything is done optically here. So really, we initialize and we read out the system optically. So that's, that's the, the main difference there. And you mentioned, David, that, that the readout is optical. Um, and I, I suppose that, that brings benefits 
um, to using NV centers. Well, what are some other benefits of using this system over magnetometry techniques such as the, the squid? Yeah, um, so of course, metameters have been around for decades, like since uh, uh, submarine detection for the Second World War, uh, which usually uh, was done uh, in, in the past with uh, flux gate metameters, which are based on induction. So they're vector metameters as well. Um, and these can reach uh, fairly good levels of sensitivity and will provide you Yes, the orientation of the magnetic field, not only the, the amplitude. Um, so that, that's great for ship hunting, well, uh, or for submarine hunting. Um, however, since it's based on classical properties, it will drift over time, especially with uh, temperature. Uh, so ideally, you want to drift the system to be able, uh, let's say, to mesh together magnetic field maps of the world or to be able to compare in a quantitative way uh, the magnetic field signals of various uh, ships or various vehicles uh, that are hidden, uh, which you might be trying to sense. Um, so there's uh, various levels of other technologies which are based on quantum, which have been developed over the time, including squids. But the, uh, the, the primary one that's being adopted on the field is atomic vapor metameters. And uh, these, they, they have a tiny gla glass cells in which there's um, rubidium or cesium, or uh, even back in the days, it was a helium cloud uh, that is getting probed with, uh, optically as well uh, with lasers. And uh, with these, you measure only the amplitude of the magnetic field, but with a, a, a very good accuracy. Um, it turns out, however, that one of the trade-offs uh, of these types of technology is that you have heading errors or dead zones, which means that if you point your sensor north uh, or east, you're going to get a different reading. Uh, to, to some extent, we're talking about like small changes. It's nano-Tesla uh, level of change, uh, where yes, arithmetic field is 50,000 nano-Tesla, roughly. Uh, but this can matter uh, actually for some mapping applications uh, based. Um, there's also heading errors. Uh, uh, well, there's also uh, dead zones, which means uh, uh, that if you point your sensor a certain way, it will stop uh, actually operating. Um, so we do not suffer from these uh, trade-offs or uh, these uh, these limitations uh, with NV centers and diamonds. So that that's that's one piece that we often tell people is that uh, it doesn't matter the way you point it. Uh, it's gonna still provide you a, a measurement of magnetic field value, um, and um, it's gonna do it with uh, great accuracy since it's based on quantum system um, and great sensitivity. Uh, even though we're not on par yet with commercial sensors, uh, it has been shown in the literature that uh, Pico-Tesla level of performance can can be reached. And David, I mentioned in my introduction that um, that your magnetometer is going to be um, uh, sent up in a satellite. Um, does that mean that it it can be made in a very compact form and that it's also very robust? It's not going to shake apart when it goes up into space? 
Yeah, absolutely. So of course, like diamond is solid state. Uh, so it's not a, a gas cell. So it's, it's much more compact uh, because it's atomic impurities instead of a, a small gas cells, even though there's been some level of miniaturization for atomic vapor metameters, like eventually it's down to the, the atom. Um, and that, that also helps with the level of ruggedness against vibrations, against temperature as well. Um, so one of the key differentiators of the technology, I would say, is that we don't use a resonant laser excitation, which means that uh, if you have a temperature change, uh, then you might get a, a wavelength shift of your laser excitation, but it won't be won't impact so much the performance of the device since it, it's non-resonant excitation. Um, on the vibration side, like everything is solid state, even on the laser side, on the electronic side. Uh, so that's that's really great. And tolerance radiation also is a, a key thing for space deployment, of course. Um, and actually, the NV centers that we use are in a synthetic diamond, which is grown by chemical uh, vapor deposition. Um, they are now commercially available. You can buy them on Tor Labs for the optics expert in the audience, um, which is really great because everybody can get to play with the tech. Um, but it turns out that these impurities, when they're included in the diamond during the growth process, they actually go through a high temperature and kneel at 1200 degrees Celsius, and they get bombarded with uh, an electron beam in order to create the vacancies. So remember the nitrogen and the vacancy by the side of it. Um, the vacancy is actually created afterwards uh, by bombarding the diamond with pretty intense radiation, which is uh, which is way bigger than what is experienced in space. Uh, so then, of course, there's all the, like what comes with uh, the technology. So the laser diode might be affected by the radiation, but again, uh, if it might change the level of uh, mid-gap defects so that the emission would be shifted again, the wavelength shifted. Uh, but this doesn't impact much the, the performance of the metameters. So really, we see it as a pretty rugged uh, platform. And over the time, uh, we've miniaturized it to a compact format, uh, which fits in the hand. For the benefit of the listener, D Dave is holding up a, a sort of a rectangular shaped box that's about the size of a, maybe a medium sized uh, Bluetooth speaker or thereabouts, would you say? Yeah, I yeah mean, pretty it's much. Not, it's, it's not a big thing. It's definitely not a big thing. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah. David, um, we've talked about space as an application. Um, what are some other, uh, where, where, can, where else can the magnetometers be used? I mean, I'm guessing they could be flown around or they could be put on a vehicle or somebody could carry them into the, into the bush. Um, it, uh, it sounds like they could be used in a lot of different places and different applications. Absolutely. Uh, so metameters are a platform technology. It's everywhere, actually. Every one of us has metameters uh, in our cell phone to tell us where the magnetic north is. So every time you look at the blue arrow on your cell phone, it's comparing your metameters uh, with uh, a global world magnetic map, which eventually we'll get to build 
Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, and uh, um, yeah, so some other applications, they're, they're very wide ranging uh, as it's a platform technology. Uh, of course, prime, primary application is navigation uh, to tell you where the north is, to tell you should you head left or right when you exit the subway. Um, but it, it remains a bit limited in its scope of ac applicability for navigation since uh, the magnetic field noise of the environment uh, will be of, uh, of sometimes similar scale to Earth's magnetic field that we use for navigation. So it's really important to um, combine the device uh, readings with interpretation algorithms so that we can screen off this interference from uh, the environment. Um, another application that's uh, very widely adopted and has been for decades is exploration and mining. Uh, so it turns out that one of the first steps uh, in exploration and finding new ore bodies and the critical minerals uh, uh, bodies that we need um, to build all the batteries for the electric uh, transition um, uh, are mapped with metameters aboard airplanes and uh, now more and more on drone platforms. So they're the, the size, weight and, and power aspect of the diamond sensor can be really interesting in terms of uh, putting it in smaller platforms, reaching global applicability. Uh, and the way magnetic fields uh, are used for exploration is to build maps uh, from everywhere uh, around the world. There's various levels, there's regional, there's local magnetic field maps um, that are available. So uh, especially in Quebec, where I'm from, there's you can go on the web and have access to the data at the, the province level. And, and this gives us information, especially for the geologists, to figure out where are the faults related to various types of minerals. It can even uh, be used to some extent if you use arrays of metameters to find kimberlites, which house diamonds. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's really a key sensing modality for exploration and mining, and then it gets combined with other modalities and ultimately going on the field, digging a hole and making sure that we really got what we think. Um, last application I want to mention is, uh, is last application I, I want to mention is really defense. Uh, so yeah, hunting for submarines. Um, so submarines are a big chunk of metal uh, that will change Earth's magnetic field lines into what we call a magnetic field uh, anomaly, which can be picked up from an airplane with very sensitive uh, magnetometers. Uh, there's uh, also other applications like detecting objects beyond walls, uh, through smoke, through water. Um, so there's uh, all this uh, range uh, of application. And finally, if uh, I come back to navigation, there's the, this whole team now uh, with uh, the, the conflicts happening uh, all, all over the world of uh, our reliance on GPS systems. Um, so more and more, it's one of the tactics by the adversary to jam, spoof, or uh, just uh, break the GPS system or to gain advantage on the field. So eventually, and that's, that's a, a nice one from my perspective, um, uh, because like nature, 
uh, has been using magnetic fields for navigation for quite a long time. It has been shown that turtles, butterflies, uh, even sharks navigate with magnetic fields. Um, so somehow we haven't mastered it. Um, <laughs> so we're kind of, uh, there's lots of uh, research groups and uh, government entities looking at how we can build these uh, high accuracy magnetic field maps so that we can um, navigate even without GPS or in cases where you're on the ground, underwater, uh, where GPS is not uh, accessible and, or even detect uh, spoofing uh, via the, your magnetic field uh, readings. Um, so that's mostly like the areas that this quantum is focusing on. Um, uh, however, there's plenty other applications ranging from healthcare uh, to uh, other scientific related applications. And and David, you you showed me your your magnetometer. It's essentially a, inside a small box that you could easily pick up with one hand and and carry around. Maybe not quite small enough to put in your pocket. Um, how how has that technology evolved from when you first uh, spun out of the University of Sherbrooke in uh, twenty seventeen? I'm I'm guessing that. At that point, was it sort of an optical bench full of lots of lenses and lasers and detectors and things like that? How, um, what was the journey like to, um, to miniaturize the technology? I would say that this has been quite an adventure developing the technology. So I did my PhD at the Institut Quantique in Sherbrooke. And uh, back then, I was the only student working on that type of system. So it was kind of my my own project. I was a, a single person army developing this technology. So I had to start from scratch, learn everything, um, build a, an optics table setup in order to perform uh, the same kind of experiments that have been done in the literature, uh, which was one by two meters uh, size. And at the end of uh, my PhD, I really wanted to turn this into a product and get the technology out in the field and uh, seeing, uh, seeing it being adopted, making an impact on the society. Um, so I was very fortunate to get funding to begin prototyping the technology uh, during my postdoctoral studies. Uh, so that's when I, I began to build my electrical engineering team and we began listing uh, requirements uh, on how to, to build the technology, what was important to reach uh, good sensitivity. And initially, it was maybe the size of a laptop as a device. Uh, didn't have the the best performance, but it was enough to be portable and to be brought to trade shows or uh, science fairs. And then we got the additional funding from an, a federal entity in Canada to do a second round of prototyping, bring it down in scale to something that is maybe one foot by one foot, and ultimately. Um, uh, shrank it to the, the size uh, of a fist. Uh, but the, the big challenge, and that, that's something we learned uh, the hard way while building the technology, is uh, when you build this type of magnetometer, it, it must not create a magnetic field by its own. So if there's a component uh, on the device that's uh, ferromagnetic, it will tend to magnetize, demagnetize, 
Um, so uh, over the last year or so, uh, as part of our NASA MacOS Challenge uh, program to send the, the device into space, uh, we looked more and more on my, the magnetic cleanliness side of the device, which has brought it to sort of the elongated uh, form factor. But in the future, we could envision something that is very small uh, and chip-sized if we, we do a custom setup. Um, but from the get-go, uh, straight out of the PhD, I wanted to start with uh, co commercial off-the-shelf components so that uh, very quickly we could prototype the technology and get to the end users, which is like key to setting a successful business. And and David, you mentioned the the MagQuest challenge, and that's um, I think that's why your your device is going to be going up into space. Can you can you talk a bit about that? What what is the the MagQuest challenge, and um, what 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 are the goals, and and what are What's the role of SB Quantum in that? So the MacQuest challenge is an open innovation challenge that started uh, something like three years ago already. And it's a phased approach to find new ways to generate the world magnetic model in a much more agile fashion, a much less costlier fashion, and uh, with greater accuracy. And uh, initially, it started with a four-pager that we sent over about uh, uh, what would be our approach, novel approach to uh, producing the world magnetic model, which included the quantum technology, but also uh, some schemes of uh, deploying our magnetometer on CubeSat platforms, which is not very common for magnetic field sensing in space uh, for now. Um, and through the phases, we build capabilities, uh, we refine our sensor uh, performance um, so that uh, uh, over the last year, we spent uh, a month at the, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center certifying the linearity, orthogonality of all the sensing axes of our sensor, uh, the scale, the offsets so that we can demonstrate that the technology can provide very, very accurate uh, levels of magnetic field measurements. And the, the key metric there is to measure arithmetic field with 20 ppm precision. So one nanotesla over 50,000 nanotesla. Uh, so that's a quite, a, quite a feat. Uh, getting the sensitivity down is, uh, can, can be a bit easier in some sense. But the accuracy is what really matters to produce the world magnetic model because you, you don't want offsets everywhere on the planet that when you grab with this global model will give you a, an error uh, at the end of the day. So, so David, the, this world magnetic model, is that, is that sort of a very detailed map of, of Earth's magnetic field that could be used for, I don't know, navigation or, and, and lots of other applications? Yeah, it turns out it's not that detailed. Uh, it captures uh, the, wor the world magnetic, uh, uh, it, capture, it captures the Earth's magnetic field with the precision of a thousand kilometer which is quite coarse. So you cannot use this like a, uh, for a, a very precise way to, let's say, orient your drone or an autonomous vehicle. Uh, because this model is taken mostly with uh, data from space. 
So you're far from the arithmetic field. Uh, you capture mostly the core uh, magnetic field. So from the magma turning around inside the, the earth. Um, and when you get actually down to the earth, uh, you get plenty of local effects uh, uh, from ore bodies in the ground, from metallic structures. Um, so it, it's really coarse. There's various other versions of, of the model with data uh, taken from airplanes, which they, they kind of mesh together to build what they call the extended magnetic model. Uh, but usually the world magnetic model is in most of the navigation devices. And really, like it's one thing to build a map, but to accurately describe uh, the Earth's magnetic field, uh, then you have to translate this map into uh, an easy equation to fit into any na navigation device. Uh, so it turns out that they use harmonic coefficients with certain weights uh, in order to capture the magnetic field with uh, 1,000 kilometer precision. I see, and and I'm so, so your your company is a, is a finalist in in this challenge does that does that mean that that ultimately your data will be used um to create this map or does it mean that you've you've got the opportunity to to provide data yeah so we're a finalist along with the university of colorado uh, and iota technology uh, so they're based in the uk um, and all of the solvers, uh, we, we call ourselves solvers <laughs> for this challenge, um, are, uh, provide solutions based on QSAT platforms. Um, and we're the only ones using the diamond quantum metameter technology. Um, but we've been through the journey, journey together. Uh, it's been an eliminative process. And uh, right now we're readying our technology to be uh, launched in space. So if everything goes well and we pass a few milestones, <laughs> uh, in probably two years, uh, we'll be launching our solution. And then it's going to begin uh, picking up arithmetic field um, uh, from, from uh, all around orbits uh, and yeah, that, that data will be uh, analyzed. We're going to perform some levels of uh, quality assurance, quality control, along with uh, NOAA in the United States. Uh, and then uh, uh, once we're uh, pretty sure that our data quality levels are uh, according to the specs, uh, then uh, NOAA will build a version of the world medic model. So we have, uh, we're looking at the two to three years uh, during which we'll collect data in orbit, make sure everything is fine, uh, and then uh, launch kind of the final solution uh, to produce the, the world magnetic model. And I, I have to mention, since uh, this is CubeSats, uh, they, they will uh, go down at the rate of uh, two to two, three years. Uh, they, they will crash on the Earth. Uh, so we have to... Um, uh, send new ones every two to three years oh, um, I see. Yeah. to build the world magnetic model for even like the, the next 20 years. 
Right. I see. Wow, that that sounds really exciting for the company. Um, but but what else are you are you looking at at the moment? You you mentioned some some other applications. Are you are ha, have you developed um, a commercial product or is that is that what's next? Yes, yes. Uh, so on the single level uh, of sensor, we're about to launch a, a product. Uh, that can be used like for lab purposes or as a base station. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we see the biggest value of a sense, uh, magnetic field sensors lies in uh, extra interpretations. Because for most people, looking at a magnetic field value won't tell you much. Uh, so we're building arrays of these metameters to generate five times more magnetic field maps. Uh, especially uh, for exploration and mining. And we're developing a product which can be fitted uh, onto a drone platform so that we can build very accurate uh, local version of maps uh, to, to guide the exploration process and to give more relevant information uh, to the geologist. So that, that's uh, the product that is coming up. And then uh, we've also been looking at the same type of um, array of vector magnetometers, but for applications in defense, seeing through walls. Uh, so we had some very nice demonstration with the Canadian army of uh, detecting objects uh, in, in a, another room so that we can tell them, okay, you're about to enter the room. You should go left or right. Is, is there a threat inside the room? Um, so that's that's been one very interesting application since Really, we can go the extra mile uh, with the technology, not, not only detecting a blip in the signal, but begin classifying the signal and saying, oh, okay, like there's something happening. It's an object. It's at 100 meters. Let's say uh, it has approximately this size um, and then uh, provide really that info uh, to the end user in a very simple fashion. Right, I see. And, and, and dare I ask if, uh, if, if AI would be involved in that? Would you, be, would you be acquiring lots of data and maybe using AI to work out what the object is? Yeah, uh, we've been using AI on various levels, even like just to tune our device. There's so many parameters to tune that we actually use an AI to, uh, to tune uh, all our devices. Uh, when you measure the magnetic field signal um, or objects uh, beyond the wall, um, ultimately what you measure is uh, one quantity of data. So we're not in the image recognition uh, landscape of the A AI. We're more into a classification uh, algorithm. So eventually you, you could think of um, an AI classifier made for magnetic field signals with the added complexity that uh, any metallic object will be affected differently um, by Earth's magnetic field, whether you point it up, uh, down, or left, right, since the shape of the object will change its magnetic signature. Um, so there's this added uh, complexity but uh, by building, again, arrays of vector metameters, we can kind of uh, get, get away uh, with uh, more information and uh, resolve that ambiguity about the object. So down the line, yes, uh, an AI could be used 
to perform a more accurate classification and provide maybe more relevant information to the, the, the people using the device. Well, that's great, David. Thanks so much for, for speaking to, uh, to me about SB Quantum. And um, Physics World wishes you and your colleagues all the best for the MagQuest challenge and also for developing these exciting new products. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Amish. It was my pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to David Roy-Gay for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be chatting with a medical physicist who is exploring how magnetic resonance imaging can be used to guide proton therapy. And we'll also be talking about a recent breakthrough in the physics of how bacteria move about. Until then, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with the astrophysicist and author Emma Chapman, and they talk about the history of radio astronomy. Chapman, who is at the UK's University of Nottingham, talks about the do-it-yourself ethic of radio astronomers and highlights the valuable contributions made by people outside the established academic community. That podcast is called Radio Pioneers, the Enduring Role of Amateurs in Radio Astronomy, and you can find it on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.